Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. In his 16 years as the anchor of The Daily Show on Comedy Central, Jon Stewart held a harsh and hilarious light up to our politics and politicians. He walked away from that perch five years ago, reappearing only on rare occasions, including his powerful shaming last year of Congress over the treatment of first responders. But now he's resurfaced with a brilliant new film he wrote and directed called Irresistible. It's a satire in which he takes aim at political consultants and cable news commentators. Wait, what? I sat down with him this week to talk about the film, his life, and the state of our union. John Stewart, good to see you, my friend. What's up, David? In an act of impeccable timing, you are unveiling a... Uh, a new film in the midst of a pandemic called Irresistible. You make uh, sport of political consultants and cable commentators, but I loved it anyway. Thank you for <laughs> providing me with the absurd world that I was able to. Uh... Yes, yes. Well, I've spent a lifetime working at that, so we'll get to that shortly. You know, I was thinking about the last time I, well, no, it wasn't the last time, but one of the last times I saw you was on your own, was on The Daily Show back in uh, 2015, and I happened to be on there the night that you announced that you were going to leave after 16 years. And when you did it, you said, hey, I've covered four elections. I don't think this one's going to be much different. That was 2016 coming up. <laughs> See what a wonderful uh, prognosticator I am? Yes, I know. Well, join, you can join all us other pundits. But uh, would, you, would you have stayed if you knew how it was going to turn out? No. No, no. I... I Part of why I left was that I didn't think I could bring what would be necessary for, you know, was it an unusual election? Because Donald Trump is an unusual figure, of course. But the general structures and parameters of how the election played out were still also not uh, unrecognizable from the previous four elections that, that we had done systemically. You know, uh, it, you can change the players, but if it's all played on a, a, a Superfund site, it's still sort of a, a polluted endeavor. Um, no offense. No, no, and I don't do personally. But it's, um, I felt like the redundancy of political coverage, the corrosiveness of the cycle, and my inability to evolved the show in a way that I thought would be a, a novel way of looking at it. I felt like I was going to, no matter who the players were, do something semi-boilerplate. And I felt mm -hmm. like the show didn't deserve that. The audience didn't deserve that. They needed a new voice, uh, a new enthusiasm, a new perspective. And, um, you know, Trevor's done that and more. So I, I've been really pleased with not just the decision for me creatively and personally, but also for all the great voices that, you know, have come out to do it uh, in a more engaged way. A lot of those voices are people who worked with you on The Daily Show, Stephen Colbert and John Oliver, Samantha P. They're all doing incisive shows right now. How do you think about that? Do you, do you think that you guys developed an approach that help define what comedy is right now on television? Um, well, I mean, it, a very specific vein of it. Um, and because it did well in the ratings, you'll see more of it. And they're all really impressive people. And what I like about what they've been able to do is 
they've been putting their own authenticity and, and spark and creativity into it to create and evolve it into new places. That's all you can ask of. That's really all that we did. We took what, you know, it, it's not like we invented the idea of commenting on political and, and media shenanigans in a humorous way. Uh, hopefully we took the inspiration that we saw from other places and, you know, melded it slightly differently or evolved it in, in a way that uh, advanced the ball rather than fumbled it. So, and, and seeing them do that and take it and elevate it from there is, is really nice. You talk about the evolution. What you did is you, you talk about authenticity. You call bullshit in a way that hadn't really been done before. You took it the next step. Are you allowed to curse in Michigan? <laughs> you know, this podcast thing, the parameters are amazing. But but that's what you did. I was wondering uh, this weekend, watching this spectacle in Tulsa, how you would have approached that. If you had come in Monday morning and you were doing the Daily Show, what would you have done with what happened over the weekend, this uh, culture war extravaganza that Trump planned that kind of fizzled? Um, um. Well, by that point, I think I'd be so exasperated with the show he's been putting on. I mean, I think it's it's not like the show he's doing now is different than the show he did in 2015. So I imagine the difficulty there is, you know, there was very little different from Tulsa uh, than was him coming down the escalator. There's really been no change tonally, no change in the kinds of ham-handed showmanship. But, you know, this is during a pandemic is the right time to to do a show with no audience. Now, uh, you know how it feels. He, he went out there with no audience and, and, and that's what we'd be doing. So I don't, you know, it's always, the show always existed in the space between the meeting uh, in the room and, what, and, and how they design what you see on television. So I'm sure we would have deconstructed what you saw on television versus how they had planned it out. Uh, nobody likes to throw a party where, you know, everything starts to, to fall apart. But it's, I, I think I probably would have covered it from the perspective of 2015 to see like, oh, he's just, he really only knows one song and he's just going to keep playing it. And it's sort of like watching Dice. You know, if he were to like play the garden now and all he did was hickory dickory dock and you're like, mm, I'm not sure that that joke's still going to work. And, you know, obviously a guy like Dice doesn't do that anymore, and he's evolved into a great actor. But Trump doesn't seem capable of evolving the shtick, and uh, whether or not that's worn, you know, his appeal at this point seems to be in his ability as a troll. And if that's enough to get you another four years, so be it. I mean, but that's... I, I've been shocked to be like, wow, he's not really writing any new material. Kung flu? Really? Yeah. That's what you're going to go with? Okay. <laughs> you kind of hit it on the head. Uh, the thing that was striking about it, other than the fact that they touted it as, as this massive uh, event that was going to draw this huge crowd, was the material was old. There was no new material. It was a relaunch with no new material. And it's no new material coming in the middle of a pandemic, an economic crisis, racial protests across the nation. Um, it's the day after Juneteenth. He's in Tulsa, the site of one of the most horrific racial massacres in our nation's history. It's the 99th anniversary of it. And he does 20 minutes on how incredibly steep ramps are. And it, it just shows, you know, this is someone who is utterly removed from it. everything is just to his own rhythms. He's incapable of rising to a moment. And we'll just see if, if playing that same song is, is what they wanted to hear. Even the idea that you talk about material, like the idea that we're talking about a president developing material for his vaudeville show is like, Oh, my God. I mean, and this is in this terrible moment of anguish. When so many people are suffering from a variety of economic or systemic ills. 
to have him up there be glib was, I think, for me, one of the most shocking aspects of it. To see somebody pantomime in the way that he pantomimes it seems so devoid of understanding of the pain and fear that so many people are going through. Like, it was bonkers and expected. In a way, this thing is setting up to underscore the contrast between uh, he and Biden. There are a lot of criticisms about the pace and rhythm of the Biden campaign, but the qualities that he projects are qualities of empathy, qualities of dignity, qualities of character. They play well against the Trump shtick, don't they, right at this moment when this country is so riven? I, I again, like, even when the country wasn't in this situation, I would have thought uh, grabbing by the pussy wouldn't have been a winning slogan, but apparently it was. So, um, and I don't know that it's even about what you project. Like, look, there's an easier task for the Republicans. It's because, well, I shouldn't even say the Republicans. It's, there is no Republican Party. It's a fully owned subsidiary of the Trump organization. And there's no real principle to it. If there were, every criticism that they leveled against Obama for eight years would raise their hackles. I mean, when Trump does it, literally down to the amount of time he plays golf. I mean, as they say, there's always a tweet, but I mean, Donald Trump's presidency is a failed presidency by the metrics laid out by Donald Trump. The things that he criticized, you know, he made his bones as a troll. And now that he's in office, the chickens come home to roost, but he lives in an entirely uh, different universe of his own making. And his minions coddle that, uh, you know, there's, there's so many myths about this man. You know, they'll say, he's a fighter, he's a counterpuncher. But he's, he's not a counterpuncher. A counterpuncher is a strategic uh, move to parry an attack with precision. Donald Trump is a tantrumer. Donald Trump doesn't, he just hits back. He can't discern the difference between an attack, a personal attack, a constructive criticism, or even praise that's not worshipful enough. They all get the same treatment. He attacks Fox News. That's not counterpunching. Fox News is a, 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 a nuclear reactor for a rim job machine. Like, all that thing does is, is coddle and fillet that man. And there's like seven minutes a week where they might push back a little bit. And even that, there's no bar of worship you can raise to. Even when uh, uh, his, his, whatever the photo stunt was, he basically tear gasses peaceful protesters and then holds up a Bible. My favorite thing was, his, the look on his face when he holds up the Bible is so stern, it looks like he's saying, who wrote this? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to, everybody stay in late until I find out who wrote this. You're in a lot of trouble, Mr. <laughs> and, and, you know, as though literally tear gassing protesters puts you more on the side of Jesus when it actually puts you more on the side of Pontius Pilate. But that's besides the point. The point is, after it ended, and this thing is a debacle, Scott Walker, who is uh, supposedly, you know, one of the more competent and respected members of the GOP establishment, tweets out, I just so admire the guts of this man. I can't imagine any other president having the guts to make that walk. And of course, the internet does what the internet does, which is goes back and finds a bunch of images of every president since, you know, Eisenhower making that walk, but without a phalanx of a riot police next to them. But what it said to me was, not only is this the emperor's new clothes, but the story ended, the emperor was called out for being naked, the crowd laughed, and then the crowd left, and the GOP establishment still turns to him after that's been exposed and says, seriously, though, that is a beautiful coat. Like, there's no moving them off of that. Yeah, well, they've tied their fortunes to him, and uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, 
nervousness right now about whether that is going to turn out to be a wise decision. But within the councils, within the the uh, the GOP electorate, he has such sway that there's fear about about leaving him. You know, the other thing about this thing in Tulsa, and then I want to move on to something else uh, that was so interesting to me, is he is the head of the government that is in charge of dealing with this pandemic. And this government of his and their public health experts have made certain recommendations to try and contain uh, this virus and keep it from spreading. And he flagrantly disregarded all of those for his event in Tulsa, despite the pleadings of local officials to uh, reconsider and so on. And it is really, really odd to be the head of the government that is charged with dealing with the pandemic and the leader of the resistance to the very recommendations that his own government is making. But that's the story of his presidency. He is the insurgent incumbent. I mean, the pandemic from the beginning. He has a press conference with all the, the leaders, uh, the health experts, the CDC experts, Dr. Fauci, and the recommendations that uh, America needs to take and how we have to shelter in place and all these things. And then he goes back and tweets out, liberate Michigan liberate Virginia. It's everything that he says. I am in complete control. I take no responsibility. And that's the message of his presidency, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is what he should run on. He's running, did you, the signs are make America great again. That's a sign that's running against the incumbent. Ameri it's, it, what it's saying is America is not great right now. We got to make it great again. Who's been in charge? None of this makes any sense, but I don't think it's supposed to because I think it's supposed to appeal to a more reptilian feeling. I think as they start out the year, they actually they actually changed the slogan to keep America great. And then we hit the trifecta of crises and people aren't feeling terribly great right now. And so they're trying to adapt. But I think what's happened, John, is the cost of, you know, there, there was a long period of time when people said, who were sort of on the bubble, well, you know, I don't like the way he behaves, but he's strong, the economy's good. And now the cost of the chaos that swirls around him and the cost of the incompetence is beginning to dawn on people. And you can see it in these polling numbers. I'm not saying he's going to lose the election because, you know, you can never underestimate a guy who will do anything. Uh, it's kind of asymmetric warfare, you know. But I do think something has changed because of, of what's happened. I, I want to talk about race with you and the, the issue of race. And I want to bring up a story that is a little bit off point, but I think leads into it. You told a story some years ago about when a critic attacked you because you had an all-male writer's room on your show. And it deeply offended you because the implication was that you were sexist and you didn't feel like you were sexist. Tell me about that. Well, that was, so we had, a, there was a, a website called Jezebel, which wrote an article accusing yep. uh, me of being sexist, running a sexist uh, operation. And I went into high dudgeon, very defensive. Uh, how dare they? Uh, I was raised by a single mother. You know, when I was growing up, and, and by the way, this was in the early 70s before single motherhood took off as a fad. She was a pioneer in single motherhood and she wore a shirt that said, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. <laughs> so I knew I was a piece of shit from early on. So how dare you accuse me of being sexist and this is outrageous. And I, I went back to the writer's room and I said, can you believe this shit, Steve, Rory, Kevin, Mike, right? You believe this shit? Dan, what do you think, Dan? You believe this shit? Elliot, Greg, Darren, anybody? Anybody believe this shit? And so in that moment, I was embarrassed. I was, I was somewhat ashamed of myself, A, for my defensiveness, but B, for it being correct, for us not having, because years before that, we had instituted a policy for some of these very reasons. You know, our show was 
like almost all late night shows, almost all white and all male. And so we had instituted a policy a few years back for writing samples to make all writing submissions uh, blind. In other words, all the names would be taken off it and they would all be formatted the same. So you wouldn't have any idea. And yet, even in that time, all the writers that we ended up hiring ended up being male and white. You know, I guess, uh, I guess the, uh, uh, the implication being, hey, man, fair process is what it is. We're not sexist. They're just funnier. Well, what you didn't realize is, you know, first of all, systems tend to propagate themselves. And second of all, where are we getting the submissions from? I mean, we're a bunch of white dudes, uh, you know, some from the Ivy League, but we're getting them from agencies. Well, who's running the agencies? bunch of white dudes, some from Ivy League schools. And who are they submitting? So what you forget is the tributaries that are feeding your pond are also polluted. And so we said, only send us women. And all of a sudden, those submissions, we were like, wow, women sure got funny suddenly. (laughs) But even then... So what you realize is inertia can be as propagating of systems that have barriers than anything yeah. that's, that's more pernicious. I didn't feel like we were actively pernicious, but our inaction propagated a system that was not fair. Now, it's not just gender. It was also race and it was also Socioeconomics, our show, you know, television and the media industry and the political consultant industry and all that are still ostensibly in the halls of power run by well-to-do white people. Now, for television, where do we hire from? Well, we have internship programs. And generally, when you need somebody new for a real job, you'll dip back into the internship programs that you had when you identified people you thought were good. Well, who were the only people who could afford to do internships? Generally, well-to-do white people. So all these systems are corrupted at their source, and you have to go through and find the source of that corruption and try and rectify it. So now we start paying interns, and all of a sudden, the people that come in are from a much more diverse background. And we're starting to identify. Now, this is a, 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 a glacial process when it comes to making those changes. And over the 16 years, changes were made and things were better because a more diverse staff is not a political correct staff. It's not a social justice staff. It's a better staff. There's less groupthink. There's more, you know, a wider variety. We had conservative Christian. We had Mormon. You know, we had. But you you start to find that that makes for a better product. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. You know, you were very outspoken uh, in 2014, and appropriately so, when Eric Garner was killed in New York. And you talked about the fact that this is deeper than one exchange between one African-American man and the police, or even about police in the community. It was about a larger societal issue. Uh, and, And we're right back there again with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. It feels like there's something different. What you described, your sort of moment of self-awareness, uh, uh, is what I, I feel right now. And I mean, I always thought, and I've written about this, that I was uh, very much attuned to race as an issue. I spent my life working on campaigns for minority candidates and trying to break down those. And I realized in the wake of this, there's so much 
that I haven't thought about. And there's so much thinking I haven't done about the whole genesis of this that goes back 400 years that we never have confronted. Uh, and uh, But it feels, and I want to ask you if it feels this way to you, um, it feels like this somehow is different this time. Now, I worry that we're receding back into COVID-19. Maybe we'll lose interest. But it feels like there are things happening, institutional things happening that are different than we've seen before. Um, you know, I don't know. And, and you and I probably aren't the best arbiters of, of whether or not it feels different because we're, we're still coming at it from a place of observation as opposed to experience. It's a broader swath. It seems to be more focused. I, I think in some ways the pandemic, in the way that people, you know, life sort of stopped, right? And so maybe it, it, it's giving people a, a moment to stop and smell the racism. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people are out of work. A lot of people aren't. And, and so when something like this happens, you're not as distracted by so much of the other things in your life that, that maybe used to go on and you have a moment to reflect. Yeah, it's also true that uh, the pandemic itself has shown a light on, uh, on racism when you look at the disproportionate burden that, you know, in terms of people who've been affected, people who've died, people who've had to work and expose themselves. I mean, it's, it's right there to see. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the the trigger point is for, for empathy and understanding. And I, but what I do know is that it can't just be about policing, that this is a much deeper issue that has a lot to do with the way that I think black people have had to negotiate for their own equality from a subservient position. And so, you know, each uh, uh, give, so to speak, of equality feels like uh, in the negotiation that the people who hold the power, but we don't hold the power of equality, but that's how it's played out. We've had to say, all right, you can eat with us. All right, you can... Okay, you can vote. Like, it's all those things. And it builds this idea in your head of what? How much more? Look, I know that they were racist and they made you slaves, but hey, I was the one who said, you can go to our schools. Now, there's going to be some people out front of it yelling at you, but, uh, you know, come on, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're doing something. So as you give that up, it, it makes it feel as though their march to equality comes with a loss from the other side, that something is being seeded that isn't being seeded. It's right in the declaration. We hold these truths to be self evident. All men are created equal uh, with inalienable rights given by, endowed by their creator. So we're not the bouncers of this club, but that's the position that they've had to, you know, it's it's Oliver. Please, sir, may I have some more? But we're not and shouldn't be the ladlers of gruel. And I think part of the, the issue is they've had to fight so long and so hard for equality. And while that was happening, we were building equity. And so the equity continues to place things on an unequal footing. So they're still negotiating from a place of lesser. And I would think that the real solution here, and this delves into reparations, and this is a whole other thing, and you and I probably shouldn't even be talking about it because nobody needs to hear from two old Jews, but a Marshall Project for Equity. Come on, it's a rare opportunity to hear from two old Jews. That's, that, that's a good point. We're shut out of the media normally. <laughs> yes. But I think, so I think there's two drawbacks, two, two things that need to be rectified through an honest conversation. One is, I think a large percentage of white people believe that black people are in the position they are in because of their own fault. That they believe 
black poverty is, is because of a lack of virtue and that uh, it's a cultural issue and not a systemic issue. The second is resource guarding, that a lot of people who are white, their lives aren't easy either. They may have privilege, but their, uh, their lives are not easy. And they believe that any resources shifted to that community are naturally resources that come from them. So there's a resentment, there's a feeling of, we didn't do anything wrong, I didn't have slaves, pull your pants up, and why am I always giving you money when I still struggle? So what I would suggest is, and this is a, this encompasses everything, that we get out of this fantasy of trickle-down economics. Every president is going to try and stimulate the economy, right? But instead of doing $1.5 trillion to mostly people, the shift that we've made to valuing the investor class over the working class, I think is the core of the damage. And if we could put whatever trillions into a kind of Marshall Plan, A, to rebuild infrastructure and equity in the black community, run by the black community, not a white people saying, all right, we'll give you an opportunity zone. Like, not that. And B, to also pour money into the white working class communities so that they understand that they're not paying the price for our trying to uh, rebuild equity in a community that we've not ever allowed to build equity by government fiat, whether it was redlining or federal housing administration laws or covenants or zoning or whatever it is. If you do those two things at once, and we have the money for it, clearly, I think you'll stimulate the economy, you'll grow middle class, you'll remove people from welfare and food stamps, you'll ease things on the working poor, you'll create a more dignified and equal, like, it just feels like an answer to so many of our problems. Yeah. You know, the resentment you speak of is obviously the core of the Trump appeal. He's a white cultural warrior. And uh, he mines that resentment. So the answer is likely not coming from them, <laughs> from there. But we're, we're enamored of supply side economics. We're enamored of trick since the 80s. That's been the way. And we have to get out of that. Yeah, I think the most important. Th I mean, programmatically, uh, you're right. The most important thing is attitudinally. I mean, uh, the, the notion I mean, the fact of the matter is that we have treated uh, African-Americans since they were captured, chained, delivered here, enslaved as second-class, uh, not just cl second-class citizens, but second-class beings. And that is something that is a hard, hard thing to confront. But everybody has to do some soul-searching on this because this is what's been illuminated by the events of the last few months in ways that we, we haven't really confronted it in a very long time, maybe since the 60s. But in any case, one last question related to this, and then I want to talk about the film. You've been uh, out of the public eye largely for the last five years, and you've surfaced when you wanted to use your voice. One of them was on behalf of the 9-11 first responders and getting them their due for the sacrifices that they made, many of them quite ill as a result of their exposure that day to the, the, the stuff they had to breathe in uh, in trying to save people. And a lot of them are police officers who you work closely with and uh, fought side by side with for their justice. And I'm wondering how you, as someone who's so close to those guys and gals, process this police issue, because it's easy to caricature. But the fact is that it's more complicated than that. Everything is. It's, you know, look, this is a, a complicated moment, as they always are. Uh, unfortunately, we're presented, for the most part, with false choices and, you know, black and white solutions. And, you know, but these aren't problems that are going to be solved in all caps, you know, in 120 characters. Um, I have worked alongside police officers, uh, every 9-11, I visit with uh, 
a woman who was friends of ours, whose brother was a Port Authority police officer uh, who died in 9-11. Uh, and we go and we visit precincts and firehouses and we bring food and we just spend the day and we talk. Um, I have great love for that community and, and great respect. I also understand that that's my experience. And while my experience is true, others have a different experience uh, that also carries uh, relevance, weight, and truth. Um, I am hopeful because my experience in that community is that there is a deep desire amongst them to help, to be valuable in the communities, and to be, and they do it because they want to be of service. Uh, understanding that that is not the relationship that other communities have with the police is, I have to accept that and, and understand it and try and find out where that disconnect is and where, and where that morphs. And to my mind, some of it is a function of the untenable position that we have put the police in that we have used them from early on in this country as, in my mind, a border patrol between the black community and the white community, the poor community and the rich community. And we ask them to police that border. And what goes on inside of that, as a matter of fact, if you watch the, the O.J. Simpson documentary, there's, you will see the literal moment that the, the riots try to cross over into Beverly Hills and camp that there is a phalanx there to say, that's okay, you do what you guys are doing, but you can't do it here. Yeah. And so by placing police, and by the way, I think we do the same thing to teachers. We ask police and we ask teachers to cure yeah. a problem, not of their making, but to be a, a proxy for us, to distance us from the problems that have been created by, by policy. You know, the inner city wasn't created by accident. It was created by government fiat. The Federal Housing Administration, we've had chances. Federal Housing Administration wouldn't loan to black people. They redlined districts, yeah. zoning, yeah. covenants. Black people couldn't build equity. I just want to point out on the way out of this that just today, there was a statistic uh, I saw that in the COVID crisis, 41% of Black-owned small businesses have gone under. Uh, that number among white people is 17%. So this thing just has tentacles that go everywhere. Yes, we need better policing procedures. We need rules and we need to enforce the law and, and we need to demand that civil rights are enforced and respected. But that's not the whole problem. And we, we should do those things, but we have to do a lot more. We need their lives not to be built on sand when ours are built on granite. And mm -hmm. I think that's the mm -hmm. whole issue. And, we, and, and that's, it shouldn't be so fragile and tenuous. They, you know what, 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 what they need that we oftentimes have? A margin of error. That's it. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. So this film, you don't appear in this film. You've said you prefer to be on the other side of the camera even after your star turn in yes. death for Smoochie. Death uh, to Smoochie. <laughs> Come on. Um, tell me why you you enjoy filmmaking rather than performing in film. Uh, okay. I wasn't very good in performing in films. <laughs> I, I always found that hard and, and not good. I feel much more comfortable writing and, and producing and, and things like that. Um, and two, I spent so much time on a topical show that the ability to, to work on something and collaborate with people that are expert in there, whether it's 
you know, Grace Yoon, who did the production design, or Bobby Bukowski did cinematography, uh, Alex Boverd on wardrobe, you know, calibrating and collaborating with people to be able to consider each bit of the frame is really a fun process for somebody who was just throwing egg salad against the wall every day. It feels more yeah. considered and, and, and I enjoy that part of the process. Yeah. One of the things I miss the most about the business that I was in, which involved a lot of uh, film shoots and editing and is, is that collaborative process is, is really stimulating. I, I really miss the hours I spent in the edit suite saying, let's cut the frame there. It's, it's great. So in this film, your old buddy Steve Carell plays a cynical, uh, seen-it-all political consultant. No disrespect. No, no, I know. I know that it wasn't me that you were talking about. And Chris Cooper, who is a wonderful actor, uh, plays this earnest small-town farmer and former military officer who Carell seizes on as a kind of host body candidate uh, to road test a political message. Um, what else? Set it up a little for us and tell me why you decided to make this film. I think, you know, I'd spent a lot of time commenting on the day-to-day -day happenings of the political system, of the media system, uh, and watching it increase in speed and lack of introspection and sort of uh, uh, in, in, incestuousness that the media and the political complex kind of started to, to meld and become kind of this larger cyclonic uh, complex, like a political industrial complex where the money was becoming outrageous the accountability was becoming non-existent. Maybe it never was. And the outcomes were becoming increasingly corrupted and never-ending. It was a cycle that, you know, think about it in terms of the NFL. The NFL makes a lot of money. And so what do the owners always want to do? Play more games. They want them, hey, what if we do 18? How about 20? And the players are always going... It hurts my brain. I actually get brain damage from that. And they're like, okay, 17. But their desire is to increase revenue. Whenever you have a system that's incentivized where revenues and money gets that large, it's going to start making decisions sort of on its own to self-propagate. So after being a weatherman for a long time, I thought, is there a way to step back and look at it from a climate perspective? Is there something about this system that is increasingly giving us these corroded outcomes and, and hurting our ability to solve problems rather than what it's ostensibly for, which is to respond to uh, the needs and well-being of constituents, of the people? And so that's the starting point. And it's how do you design a story that could maybe, in, in some small measure, get at that? The, the portrait that you portray of people in politics is sort of, uh, you know, as I said, cynical, manipulative. Yet also idealistic at times. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the idealism is accentuated in your movie? Uh, I think it's an undercurrent that, mm -hmm. that gets to an idea of sometimes... It doesn't matter who you are or what you are when you swim in, in a toxic mud, it can't help but get on you to some extent. And then uh, the other uh, target here is are the uh, are cable talkers who you portray as a bunch of uh, kind of fatuous chimps. <laughs> that should be what they're listed as in the credits. Fatuous <laughs> chimps. Yeah. Fatuous chimp one, yeah. fatuous chimp two. Yes, it is. Yeah. It is a a not a of uh, a, a flattering portrayal of our political system. I would say. <laughs> I mean, I guess the question is, how much of a caricature do you think it is? Not as much as I wish it were. Now you're in it, and and here now we're getting back to the other thing, which is the defensiveness of the participants in a system that needs to change. 
and we go back to that story that I told about not having enough women writers, right? I understand that I might not have been necessarily responsible for sexism in television. I understand that I reacted badly to that portrayal of me and that I didn't feel it was just. But what I had to grapple with is that my actions were contributing to that system perpetuating something negative and unjust. Yeah. Look, I'm not, uh, I don't feel defensive uh, about it. I do accept, I, I, I lived in that world for a long time and I do consider myself an idealist and there were things I found deeply disturbing. In fact, I was on my way out of the business when I ran into Barack Obama and we decided to embark on this long shot Senate race. How'd that work out? Very well, actually. <laughs> He was he was very coachable. I was able to impart all these things to him, and he turned out to be quite a good candidate, is what it is. Now, the truth is, I found the candidate of my dreams, and I had the ride of a lifetime, is what is what happened. And, you know, but and I also was a journalist, and I am half a foot in that now. And, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot as well, because journalism is a trust, but it's also a business. And it was easier for it to operate when there wasn't a lot of competition, when you had three networks and, you know, there was. But now we have this mad scrum for viewers, for clicks. And, you know, the guy who understands this better than anybody is Donald Trump, who's completely gamed uh, the system. And I guess the question is, how do you strike that balance? Because they are businesses, they need to run on a profit. New York Times was in desperate straits, and it's very healthy now. And I think Trump rightly claims some credit for that because they've gotten a lot of clicks because of him and their coverage of him. How do you balance all of this? You know, I think it depends. It's, it's very tough because when you talk about the media landscape, you know, there's sort of this idea that it's the Borg and it's not made up of individuals. And there are many individuals within it uh, who are swimming against the tide and doing great work or in print or in uh, thing, but the, the dominant economic cycle and the dominant uh, salient cycle in news is 24-hour news networks and then the internet ecosystem that has grown up around it, that serves to amplify uh, the 24-hour cycle's most controversial and egregious moments. So you have this 24-hour factory that is creating what it, it, it wants you to engage uh, with its content. And so there has to be an urgency to it. And so it exists and, and, and it's gotta be producible. Like when you're producing television at that speed, it's very hard to make that television thoughtful or analytic, you, you set up templates. Anybody who's a producer understands that. My template is person at desk, person on right, person on left, one person who uh, functions as expert and whatever comes through, we filter through that. Those people also are, those are jobs. And so their well-being and their finances revolve around their ability to stay on camera. And staying on camera means saying things that are at times inflammatory, sometimes insightful, sometimes smart, but also representing. And then those most uh, uh, controversial or uh, uh, urgent moments are then aggregated by an internet that is also searching for an economic model. So those get elevated. So the 24-7 cycle creates the material, Mediaite uh, grabs its most egregious examples, that gets propagated. The right-wing websites take their, create their model and they put that out there. And it's, it creates this cyclonic yeah. system. The dynamic you describe is real. There's also been some extraordinary work done in the last four years that has been really important, you know, shining a bright light in dark corners. That's not the business model, and that's not what gets accentuated. And the problem with that is if you have a factory that produces noise and pollution, it doesn't matter that the factory next to it is solar powered and, and has no carbon footprint and makes things right because it's, it's all subsumed in the fog. 
I guess what I'm saying is that the factory with the solar power and so on needs to be sustained and built. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's a complicated challenge. But here, two things before we go. One is you did this wonderful interview, which I recommend to everybody in the New York Times on Sunday. And at the end of it, you, you talked about American exceptionalism as a believer in American exceptionalism. What is American exceptionalism to you? Well, that's so that's the election. Donald Trump has said we're going to make America great again. The question is, what is the greatness? What is American exceptionalism? In my mind, it's not a title like Miss America that you win and then you get a sash and it exists. American exceptionalism to me is the willingness of the American system to do the work necessary to improve and advance the lives of its citizens and the creed by which it was founded. You know, America began with an incredible experiment. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal Mm -hmm. and and that it was going to be a representative republic and that the consent of the governed was going to be a guiding principle. And that's remarkable. And 10 years later, it enshrined that black people were going to count as three-fifths of citizens. And by the way, that was a Northern conceit because the South wanted them to count as a whole person, just not to have any rights of a person, not to be a person Mm -hmm. at all, but to count as one, even though we had just fought a war that was all about taxation without representation. So what, you know, we fight a war for a revolution, right? For this high-minded ideal. And then 10 years later, we compromise on the ideal by suggesting that the creation of the union was more important than the principle behind the creation of the union. So we're, we're immediately in like a weird mathematical position. One equals one. Well, actually, one equals three-fifths for them and those people. So American exceptionalism is the work that needed to be done to bring the promise of that to as many of its people as it could and can t- to continue that. You know, the most important thing you said is by the consent of the governed. It also requires the participation of the governed. Correct. But I think the government goes out of its way to basically say, you go shop and we'll take care of this. They benefit by darkness. They benefit by the noise machine. And so I think my biggest issue with the news media and all those things is it is one of our greatest tools to help us, you know, recapture the spirit of American exceptionalism. And if it doesn't work with us towards that goal, we suffer from it. Yeah, well, that's why I'm wondering whether these months will change that in any way. You're seeing it. You know, again, I've always said Donald Trump's going to make America great again, just not in the way that he thought he would. I think you're going to see real grassroots engagement from people who are working. You know, look, what's the one thing they always say about Donald Trump? Well, you know, I don't like the way he is, but he loves America. How are you measuring that? First of all, the only measurement of love or amount of love I've ever seen is in your arm span. I love it this much. Okay. So what? That's like a a five-year-old. But what does he love about it? He seems to hate like 50% of the people living in it or 55%, depending on the, the, the poll. So what is it about America he loves? And they'll always say the freedom, the Constitution. But if it's not freedom for everyone, then it's not real. Too many people in this country right now don't have freedom. And I know that they always talk about that somehow political correctness is the end of freedom or that if you're more concerned about language policing right now, that's a problem. But they continue to paint themselves as the victims of tyranny. But they've redefined that Tyranny is the exercise of power, not for them, because they don't mind Donald Trump exercising power and they don't mind executive action when it's in their service. And by the way, they don't mind language policing when it's in their service. Ask Mitt Romney about cancel culture. See how he feels about that. That's not the left. You know, this is nonsense that, you know, uh, uh, People aren't allowed to, to say there's more speech in this country than I've ever seen in the history of this country. It's everywhere. But speech doesn't mean freedom from pushback. 
And political correctness isn't just uh, people that are tired of taking your shit pulling back. Like, what, what did Eric Trump say at the, uh, uh, at the thing? We're going to say Merry Christmas again. Merry Christmas is the most used phrase in America other than with cheese. Like, <laughs> come on, man. And how is that not? So I'll, 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 I'll end with this. You know, they're working hard. The right is working really hard to make themselves the victims of this moment. Oh, the statues are all coming down. You know, what a terrible thing, uh, our country forgetting its history. Well, I don't remember when Saddam Hussein's statue came down in Iraq. Everyone on the right going, there's a big mistake, Iraq. You do not want to erase your history. And the Confederate statues are not, they're not accurate portrayals of our history. They're leftover totems of segregation. They were built by people during the Jim Crow era, trying to remind black people that they had something to fear. The plaques on them don't say, this motherfucker tried to fight a war so that he could have slaves, and we just put this up to remind you of that. You know, they don't, if you don't, like everyone's talking about these statues who just come out. They've been begging for Confederate flags and statues to come down for years, and they've always been told no. And so now they're surprised that it's happening in a cataclysm. It's like, what's his name? George P. Bush tweets out, because everybody's coming out like, I don't really support Donald Trump. I'm going to support Donald Trump because Donald Trump is the only thing standing between America and socialism. That's nonsense. And the only thing that's actually standing between America and socialism is an inability to properly reform the collateral damage that can be done by capitalism, especially as we practice it today. That's what will cause socialism because people will well, get to a point where the inequality is so great, there will be a cataclysm. Yeah. Well, I get wound up. David, I get wound up. I know, I know. And it's probably the way uh, to end. I did, I did want to ask you about the Times. In the Times interview, you said your life became much richer when you left your yes. show. And I thought that was really, uh, it was really an interesting observation because a lot of people would say you were at the apex of your career. You were ubiquitous and you walked away from it and somehow your life is richer. There is an important lesson in that. Well, two things. One, ubiquity is overrated. And, you know, <laughs> and unfortunately, look, be barely frank, and you know this, if I didn't have a, a, a movie that I wanted people to see, I wouldn't be out talking to anybody anyway, because I don't particularly feel the need to. But this whole publicity run is going to go very quickly from, we haven't heard from Jon Stewart in five years to, can you please shut the fuck up already? It's enough. Like, believe me, after after a week of all this, you know, it, it was it was five minutes after that Times article came out that the Daily Beast already had up a who gives a shit what Jon Stewart has to say about policing. I was like, yeah, all right, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, and it's true. But I'm still, and very fortunate to have this, but I'm still good copy for the internet economy. And so a lot of these things that I'll be saying will go out there, not because necessarily people think they're interesting or smart or anything other than they think it will get engagement. And isn't that the name of the game? And so being out of that economy is wonderful. And life is good. Well, I mean, it's a pandemic. And I'm in that demographic where they tell you to stay in the basement. But like, <laughs> other than that, it's, uh, you know, it, it's life is good individually and life is heartbreaking. We are in a terribly anguished time. And my hope is that Joe Biden, because he has experienced loss, because he has experienced grief, that hopefully those experience humble him enough that he can connect with people who are experiencing their own anguish and grief. Because right now, almost more than anything, I think we need a leader who knows humility, who understands their imperfections, who doesn't believe that learning curves are for pussies, and who can move forward with grace. And if that's what he does, I, I will be delighted. John Stewart, always good to chat, my friend. Good luck with the film, Irresistible. Thank you, I recommend sir. it to everybody. 
and uh, I look forward to many more conversations. Thank you, sir. Good talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.